We're continuing in a series called First Followers, where we're exploring the book of Acts. And I can't think of a better book for us to be in as as a new church, to be learning from the first followers of Jesus what it means to be disciples who are making disciples. And this morning, we're going to look at Acts chapter 8. The title of the message is The Invasion. Before we jump into our text, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be gathered again. Thank you for your word, the encouragement that we receive from it, the instruction that we receive from it. Father, we want to persevere. We want to endure. We want to move forward, Lord, in our relationship with you with eyes of faith fixed on you. Help us to do that. As we explore your word, Father, help us to to walk away with great encouragement, to be challenged, to be equipped, that you would do all of this and more by your spirit, we pray. Ready our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Prejudice, animosity, deep suspicion, and hostility. Add to that a city completely in awe and under the power of an egomaniac sorcerer. That's right, I said sorcerer who loved to boast that he was someone great. That is what Philip, who was a follower of Jesus, he walked into that when he arrived in the city of Samaria. Obstacles like this would be intimidating to anyone. So what did he say? What would you have said? How did he begin this ministry in this this city where there were so many obstacles? We're going to look at uh, three things this morning. First, the invasion where this city came under a new power. Second, the inclusion, where those who put their faith in Jesus became part of a new family. And finally, the illusion, a perverted request to control God. First, the invasion, under a new power. Let's begin by reading the text here in Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power uh, of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers uh, there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. And they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Well, first we see the invasion. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first, Philip scattered like the rest of uh, those believers, those first followers of Christ. He scattered, um, he left Jerusalem after Stephen's death. Stephen, if you remember, was one of the, the, the men chosen to serve widows their food. And he then proclaimed Christ, and there was a synagogue that was really upset at what he was saying and accused him, falsely accused him. He was brought before the Sanhedrin, and eventually he was stoned. And after Stephen's death, we're introduced to Saul, who persecuted the church and went house to house, dragging men and women to prison. Now, Philip was one of the seven chosen to wait on the widows and to supply food for them, along with Stephen. So he knew Stephen. I mean, this was his friend. This was his co-laborer who had died. He'd been murdered, been stoned to death. So Philip left Jerusalem like everyone else except the apostles, and he scattered. But what's interesting is it says in verse 4, wherever they went, they brought the truth of Jesus with them. And so what Philip is doing is he's, he's carrying the torch that Stephen had once carried. And the mission isn't over just because Stephen's dead. In fact, because of Stephen's death and because of the persecution that came after Stephen's death, the church scattered and was bringing the gospel into areas that they otherwise wouldn't have gone. And so Philip finds himself in the region of Samaria. This is enemy territory. The Samaritans and the Jews, they hated each other. We're talking tons of prejudice and animosity having built up over hundreds of years. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans according to John uh, chapter 4, verse 9. Now, why is that? They were regarded with deep suspicion and hostility. They were regarded as heretical, half-Jews at best. They believed in the books of Moses but dismissed the rest of the Old Testament. They believed God should be worshipped in Samaria, right there at Mount Gerizim, instead of Jerusalem. They anticipated a restorer, a prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, yet they practiced syncretism, which is combining their, their faith in Moses and also other religions surrounding them, pagan ideas. They took what they believed about Yahweh and just combined it with other religions. So you can see how radical Jesus' Good Samaritan story was when he told it. Or how radical it was when Jesus approached a Samaritan woman at a well and how taboo that was. Now, all this hostility and suspicion, all this history and background with the Samaritans was taking a back seat now. Why? Because Philip had the kingdom of God to proclaim. And there was no barrier, there was no obstacle that was going to stop that from happening. And there is no barrier and there is no obstacle that can get in the way of what God is able to do through the proclamation of his kingdom and of Jesus. 
And we see that unfold. And Philip quickly saw who the real enemy was, that it wasn't the Samaritans. He quickly saw who the real enemy was when he stepped foot in that region of Samaria and understood what he was actually participating in was an invasion. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, I, I really encourage you to read this book if you haven't. He writes, he titles, there's a chapter called The Invasion. And he says, he talks about enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise. And is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. In proclaiming the the liberating power of Jesus, in proclaiming the rule of God, the kingdom of God, Philip was calling out any and every other power for what it was, counterfeit. He was taking part in a great campaign of sabotage, as C.S. Lewis would say. He stood in opposition to every other competing power. And the truth is, local church, we do the same thing when we proclaim Christ. He's saying the rightful king is landed. Jesus is claiming now what belongs to him. He's taking it back. He's invading enemy territory through Philip, through the proclamation of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God through his king, his chosen anointed one, through Jesus, his son. So when the crowds heard, it says, and when the crowd saw the miraculous signs that Philip did, it says that they all paid attention to what he said. The signs, these wonders, deliverance from demonic oppression and possession, healings of many, these were signs of God's rule. And these signs were backing up what what Philip was proclaiming. We saw this in the ministry of Jesus. When we walk through the Gospel of Mark, if you remember, wherever Jesus went, he proclaimed and demonstrated the rule of God. His message was what? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's right here. Repent, turn away from yourself and living for yourself. Own up to your own uh, sin and disobedience. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. He was proclaiming the rule of God. Wherever there's a kingdom, there's a king. Jesus the Christ is Jesus the king. It's what the word means, the anointed one. So that was Jesus' message, and wherever he went, it showed God's rule because what was he doing? He was pushing back the powers of darkness. He demonstrated the kingdom of God over death, over disease, over sin. He brought deliverance and restoration. He brought healing and forgiveness. So what do we see happening when Philip proclaims the kingdom of God? Verse 7, many were delivered from evil spirits. A sign, a sign that... The kingdom of God has come. Many were healed. So here we see in Samaria, there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of deliverance needed, a lot of healing needed. What's the result of all of this? Great joy. It's what you would imagine. Great joy filled the city, filled these individuals who had experienced liberation, who had experienced freedom where once they were under the strong arm of the enemy, Philip comes and proclaims freedom in Christ. He proclaims the king is here. He's come to redeem. And what he accomplished on the cross, what he did in his life and in his death and resurrection was for you. Repent and believe. 
And so as these Samaritans were owning up to the fact, yes, this Jesus is this restorer, this rescuer, the one who, who we were waiting for, but we didn't know how he was going to come. And yeah, we had twisted things around, but you've made it plain to us now. And great joy filled the place, filled the city. You know this joy if you've experienced the grace of God in Christ. You know it. This joy is a fruit of the Spirit's presence. A joy that can be joyful in the face of any circumstance, any situation. Why? Because it's not rooted in the circumstance. It's rooted in a reality outside of that circumstance. That whatever circumstance comes our way, we have our joy rooted in who God is in the face of Christ. What God has done for us in Jesus that we're liberated out of our sin and shame, that we're brought into a a new relationship with the living God, reconciled to him. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can change that, jeopardize it, uh, adjust it, nothing. So this great joy fills our hearts. The weight is lifted. Reconciliation accomplished. Forgiveness. Restoration. Hope given. We know that joy. We're introduced then to a character that brings to light why this region, why this city was so oppressed. Simon. Simon the sorcerer, the wizard. This great magician. The man was a celebrity for sure. He he amazed everyone and had them essentially eating out of the palm of his hand. I mean, the ancient world of magic, it wasn't uh, like the art of illusion that we might see uh, modern-day magicians walking in. It involved some of that. It involved trickery or deceit and the sleight of hand, for sure. But it was dependent on the reality of dark, demonic, spiritual forces and the belief that they could actually be manipulated and controlled and used to the advantage of the the sorcerer, of the magician. So here's a man who practiced magic. And he boasted that he was someone great. There was a lot of self-promotion going on. This man's an egomaniac for sure, struggling with some narcissism. All the people, it says though, both high and low, gave him their attention, which means the man had influence, he had power. They said of him, the people of Samaria said of him, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They're calling him divine. Later on in history, it would be written of Simon that they even uh, built a statue to him and uh, It doesn't go well for Simon later on. We'll get to that. Simon has power. It's satanic. It's demonic. He has a following. He has serious influence. He's even considered divine. So what could surpass that? Well, along comes Philip. He wrecks it all for Simon. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip, but when they believed Philip, everything changed. What happened? You see, Philip preached the good news of the kingdom of God. I I talked about that already briefly. This is the rule and the reign of God. And he preached the name of Jesus, it says, which is what? When we come in the authority and the power of Jesus the king, that he has rights, he has all the authority, he has all the power. So Philip preached the kingdom of God, and he preached the name of Jesus. That's what he chose to preach when he stepped into enemy territory in the midst of that darkness. 
and he saw the real enemy. What an appropriate message to proclaim. It's a message we need to carry in our hearts as well. The kingdom of God, the name of Jesus, the authority and power of Jesus over every other authority, and the kingdom of God that brings restoration, reconciliation, hope, renewal, and on and on. This good and righteous and just and fair and loving rule of God in his son Jesus. You know, Jesus says, uh, he talks of the kingdom that we should, we should run after the kingdom like hidden treasure. That's how our, our, we should be interacting with the reality of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That we should view it as treasure hidden in a field. And out of joy, a man found this treasure hidden in a field. He sold everything he had so he could have the field which, which held the treasure. And Jesus tells that parable and many like it so that we understand the value of the kingdom of God, the value of living under the rule of God in Christ. Do we value it? Do we see it as beautiful? Do we see it as liberating? Do we see it as what we were made for? This is what Philip preached. And what happened? They believed. They embraced the reality of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And they obeyed because they were baptized. And in baptism... You're declaring allegiance to Jesus. This is a new loyalty. You're identifying fully with his life and his death and his resurrection. When you you go in the waters of baptism, you're saying, I'm identifying fully with what he did for me, that he died and he rose again. Now I'm new in Christ, cleansed of my sin. Full-on identification, a public declaration. See, they had been under the power and influence of Simon for long enough. The curse had been lifted. The counterfeit power, which seemed to be everything to them for a time, was seen for what it really was. It was exposed for the the hollow shell that it was. You know, the problem with counterfeits is that they look so legit, so real. You ever been there? You ever experienced something that seemed like the answer you were looking for, only to discover that it wasn't even close, and that in the end, you find yourself under its power? Maybe something you thought you could control ending up controlling you? Some examples might be sex. It promises satisfaction. Or alcohol. It promises peace. Or money. It promises security. Things that seem like the answer that end up robbing you of the very thing they promise and can place you under a strange power. Autonomy. Living our lives out from under the authority of anyone, and especially God. Thinking we'll find rest or peace in ourselves. It's a deep and dark magic that, if possible, would lull all of us to sleep, believing there's nothing more to life than living for ourselves. Believe it. There's this um, part in C.S. Lewis's book called uh, The Silver Chair, The Chronicles of Narnia. I love The Silver Chair. I like Voyage of the Dawn Treader and The Silver Chair. Those are my two favorite. But The Silver Chair, there's this witch and, and she's strumming her instrument and she's burning this incense and she's singing a beautiful song and they're, they're talking about Narnia and the sun uh, and, and, the, and Aslan, the lion, and she's just saying, there is no sun because they're, the, they're in the underworld. There is no sun. There is no Narnia. There is no Aslan. 
And, and she's trying to lull them, and they're getting heavy-eyed and sleepy-eyed, and, and they just, they're, 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 they're starting to succumb to this song of the witch and believing her lies. And then Puddleglum, who's an amazing character in this story, I can relate to him big time, uh, he, he just, he's had enough, and he sticks his webbed foot in the fire, and, and he knew it would hurt, but it would wake him out of this, this enchantment, and it did, and, and plus it smelled really bad, and everyone came out of the enchantment, and they saw the witch for who she was and what she was doing. I won't give it all away, uh, but she turns into something really grotesque, and really, when I was thinking about Simon the magician and his hold and his power over the Samaritans, and when I was thinking about, kind of fast forward to our day, the things that can have their influence and power over us that promise satisfaction, but in the end, we just find ourselves under their power. I mean, that's, we're believing its song. The song of autonomy, the song of, of sex, the song of, of power, of influence, of money, you name it. Enough of this dark magic, right? Enough of this sorcery. Enough of this slide-of-the-hand trickery. Don't you want the real thing? Don't you want what you were created for? That's what Philip brought the Samaritans. And what, did, what happened next? Well, verse 13, Simon actually believes, and he's baptized as well. I didn't, I didn't expect that. Second, we see the inclusion. So we've seen the invasion. Philip comes, and he brings this powerful message of the kingdom. Second, we see the inclusion. And we, we see this in, in chapter 8, starting in verse 14. So many, I mean, so many had come to faith in Jesus, including this magician. He couldn't deny the power that Philip was walking in. Philip certainly wasn't boasting in himself like the magician was. And he was boasting in Christ. But then we see this inclusion that happens. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what's going on? Why were Peter and John sent to Samaria? If the Samaritans had accepted the word of God, why had they not received the Holy Spirit? These are important questions. Why had the Holy Spirit not yet fallen on the Samaritans? Are we supposed to understand salvation as a two-stage kind of process? Some followers have the Spirit, some don't have the Spirit. Are some followers of Jesus wandering around without the Spirit of God right now? I think it's important for us to see that this story in the book of Acts is a unique story. It's part of this, this, this redemptive history that's unfolding before us. The gift of salvation, uh, salvation normally comes with the gift of the Spirit. Uh, if you remember when Peter was proclaiming Christ in Acts chapter 2, we see in verse 38 what he says in Acts 2 verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, that's normative. This is unique, what we're seeing happen here in Samaria. And the apostles don't continue to do this. They're not hunting people down, laying their hands on them, and making sure they've received the Spirit. But, so what's, what is this teaching us? What is this account meant to teach us? I believe it's meant to teach us of the certainty of the inclusion of those previously written off as enemies. Great animosity, great hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews 
the apostles back in Jerusalem, they hear that the Samaritans have embraced Christ and they're like, what? Let's go see this. And then they lay their hands on them, recognizing that they had not received the Spirit. God withholds the Spirit until the apostles lay their hands on them and then gives the Spirit like he did at Pentecost. When the apostles were gathered in that upper room and the Spirit is poured out, there had to be something visible that happened because Simon the magician saw it and he's like, man, I want that. Were they, were they speaking in tongues? What, what was going on? Well, we don't know. We're not told. But it was something visible. And what it's saying here is that what's happened to the Samaritans is legit. They're part of this new family. Yeah, the Samaritans. Yeah, the ones that were despised. Yeah, the ones we were enemies with. Yeah, the ones who were hated. They're now part of this community. <clears throat> and Jesus, if you remember, he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Oh, let me tell you, the mission of God's church, the mission of God's people just starting to roll out. The apostles are affirming. The Samaritans have moved from a place of tension and hatred to a place of love and acceptance. A people previously regarded with deep suspicion and hostility, they're now members of the church. God is invading enemy territory. He's breaking down barriers to reach his children. No one is too far gone. Chuck told us this in his local story. No one is too far gone. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And this story should encourage each one of us to remember that. Finally, the illusion. We talked about the invasion. We talked about the inclusion. And now the illusion, a perverted request to control God. You see, Simon saw what happened when the Spirit fell on the Samaritans. And he said, I want that for myself. He, He didn't say, I want God to use me however he sees fit. He said, essentially, I want to use that power for myself. You see, Simon was unable to compete with Philip and the apostles, so he wanted to buy what they had. And this isn't an innocent request. It's a tragic request. It's perverted. It's delusional. He wants to bring the sovereign God of all under his control. He wants to manipulate the power of the Holy Spirit for his own personal gain. That's what he wants. And why not? If he's... if. If he's been doing this with other spirits and and demons and trying to manipulate and control for his own personal gain, it, it makes sense. This is what he wants to do, but it's tragic. He's looking for a way to continue his career. He's grasping for control that he once had at any cost, apparently. He's acting as if the Holy Spirit is an impersonal power to be controlled. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal power. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is God. God the Holy Spirit. What he's doing is very offensive. What Simon has requested is very offensive. And Peter brings him the strongest rebuke or warning you can imagine. Literally, he says, you and your money can be damned. You you can't buy this. You can't control or manipulate or use God. You have no part, he says, or share in this. Why? Peter says, your heart is not right before God. Now, the heart is the seat of your affections and your desires. Jesus says in Matthew, where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So your heart, oh, it's it's the seat of all your affections and your desires. And he says, your heart isn't right, Simon. Your affections, your desires are misplaced. 
In fact, he goes on to tell Simon and just he exposes the motives of his heart. You're full of bitterness and captive to sin. That's a bad diagnosis. It's really bad. Literally, Simon is full of bitter poison. What in the world? I thought Simon believed and was baptized. The problem is that for Simon, it's apparent that he was more in love with the signs and wonders that Philip and the apostles were performing than in the Jesus they were proclaiming. What's the object of your faith? Is it Jesus? You see, you can profess and be baptized. You can follow along and be amazed at what you see and still not be a follower of Christ. Still not bow your life to his rule and reign. Still not live driven by uh, the right motives. You see, Simon had these selfish motives. He believed in this old illusion that he could somehow manipulate and control God. You might say, oh man, Darren, I I would never do that. How often have we treated God more like a genie in a bottle than the sovereign Lord of all? Or like another tool on our belt just to get what we want? How often have we brought requests with strings attached? If I give enough money, God will fill in the blank. Since I've served the church this many years, God owes me fill in the blank. So Simon is presented to us as a warning. We think the longing for power and influence, the longing for control, had Simon by the neck. That might be the picture in our minds. But it's not that way at all. The truth is, Simon was holding on to those things and didn't want to let them go. Why? This was his identity. Defined him. He was a celebrity. Now, you can agree Jesus is the Son of God. You can believe and be baptized, but where does it bring you? Does it bring you to a place of humble submission? Have you laid all your tricks down and your motives down? Do you come to God saying, yes, I want more of you, but not to use you. I want to know you and I want to be used by you. So here I am. Use me as you choose. I want to be empowered by your personal presence. I want you for you, not what you can do for me or what I can get from you. I want you for you, God. Is that your heart? What kind of influence and power does God, the Holy Spirit, have over you? Now, in verse 24, Simon seems more concerned about escaping judgment, to be honest. What happened to Simon? We don't know from Acts 8. Later, uh, extra-biblical material would say that Simon actually was uh, a heretic. He pulled away from the faith and started um, Gnosticism in that area. We don't know for sure. I hope that's not true. But here it's clear that Simon was more interested in signs and wonders than in Jesus. Now I want us to compare briefly Simon's response with another man who had influence and money. Jesus tells us about a man, a tax collector, who approaches God in prayer along with a Pharisee, a religious man. And they both go to God in prayer And the Pharisee is boasting, I'm glad I'm not like all these other guys, like tax collectors and all these, basically these losers. 
And the tax collector, he can't even look up to heaven. He's beating his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one goes away justified? It's the tax collector. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Look at Simon's response and look at the tax collector's response. Very different. Do you come to God this way? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Watch what God will do in response. Or do you go to God looking for what you can get and how you can control? Well, the invasion continued one village at a time. Boundaries had been broken. The Samaritans were part of the new community of God's people. And the apostles affirmed it. And they started their way back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel of Jesus in Samaritan village after Samaritan village. What a sight. Jesus was doing what he promised, and there wasn't a wizard in Samaria who could stop it or control it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Oh, we pray that this story would influence us. That we would see the warning that's there. That it would humble us. That if we're striving for influence or power or whatever, that Lord, we'd let that go. That we'd come to you humbly. That we'd lay all our tricks and all our motives down. That we'd submit to Jesus as King who has all authority and power over us and who frees us, who liberates us from from being enslaved to those things that we think will bring joy, that we think will bring satisfaction. Help us, Lord, like Philip, to be bold in our witness in the proclamation of Christ, believing that you are bigger than any barrier. You're greater than any barrier. Whatever darkness, whatever, whatever prejudice, whatever animosity, whatever hatred might be there between family members or friends or whatever, Lord, we might be facing, Lord, help us to believe that you're bigger than it all. We trust you, God. Amen.